Well, aloha from Maui, Hawaii, and welcome to this week's Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. We're here live and always free every Sunday at 1 o'clock Pacific Standard Time and during the summer Pacific Daylight Time, 1 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the East Coast of the United States, Sunday afternoon, and 21 hours GMT. In the summer, it's 20 hours GMT, but we're now in standard time. 21 hours GMT, or universal coordinated time. Funny, they call it universal coordinated time. That's hardly uh, the case. It's like the World Series, but only American and Canadian teams play. Anyway, nice to be with you, and um, I hope um, things are going well in your life. And appreciate you being here. Also, want to thank you for using the forwarding link on the website, theagelesswisdom.com. The T H E, as you probably know, is part of the URL. It's the W's.theagelesswisdom.com. And if you click on the homepage to go inside, and then click on the link that says Web Teleconference. The whole archive is in front of you. And along with it, a little gadget you can use to forward these programs to friends of yours, which is a good idea. It's fun. They appreciate it. Uh, you'll enjoy it. And uh, I will as well, because we want to let people know that this kind of information is available. There are so many people now that describe themselves as spiritual but not religious, who feel a longing and a sense that they are so much more than they seem to be. But organized religion is not answering their tough questions. In fact, often organized religion seems to be not only out of step with modern times, but um, absolutely medieval in many cases. You know, that uh, until recently we had a president that talked about war as a crusade. Um, and the, you know, enemy so-called answers back with their jihad, the similar kind of thing. And this is absolutely medieval. And we have to rise above this and, and respect and honor the people of peace in all religious traditions but also understand that there is a huge body of philosophy available for those people who want better answers. And this speaks to today's topic, better tools for arriving at those answers. Our topic today is equanimity, and that is one of the tools that can help us arrive at better understandings of who we are, why we're here, where we came from, where we're going, <laughs> what is life, and more insight into the miracle of existence. Not only the fact that, as Einstein proved with his equation, that energy and mass are two forms of the same thing, and that in terms of the appearance of the universe, everything is either energy 
or mass, and they're convertible. They go back and forth. A metaphysician might call it spirit and matter. Same thing as energy and mass, except perhaps there are energies that are non-physical, um, very high frequencies, very rarefied energies that behave like physical energy, but stand outside the spectrum of so-called physical energy. That would be spirit. So my argument is energy and matter, um, which Einstein put an equal sign between, right? E equals mc squared, energy equals mass at the speed of light squared. Um, but moreover, there's consciousness. There is awareness. There is a universe here with material objects and a lot of energy. But you can't stop there. You have to go to the fact that it's sentient. It's conscious. Clearly, humans are conscious, or some of the people you and I know are conscious. I'm not so sure about everybody watch too much cable news, you might be concerned about that. Uh, are animals conscious? Well, of course, animals are clearly conscious and sentient beings, perhaps not as conscious as human beings, but we have to be careful. It could be some animals uh, are more conscious. Their central nervous systems would suggest a bigger brain and a more complex way of thinking. Animals like whales, for example, and dolphins could be there even more conscious or aware than we are. But certainly animals are conscious. Are plants conscious? Are they aware that they exist? It's likely. There are some pretty cool experiments that were done back in the 1960s uh, and written about in a book called The Secret Life of Plants. And uh, certainly seems, if you, if you peruse that book, that plants are conscious on some level. And many people would argue that even the mineral kingdom, you know, rocks and stones and dirt and uh, so-called inorganic material, liquids and gases, the atmosphere, the clouds, uh, they are on their own level not the same as plants or animals or people, obviously, but in, in their own way, perhaps even the mineral kingdom is pervaded or conscious, right? Imbued with consciousness, I'll say it that way. So how would we know is the question. Well, we have to create a level of mind where we manage our thoughts and manage our feelings in such a way that we go beyond believing we are simply those thoughts and feelings. Ah, there's the rub. There's the trick. How do we as thinking, feeling creatures go to a place of equanimity, a place where you are aware of your thoughts, but know that you are more than these thoughts? that you are one who can think these thoughts, who can reason with this set of thoughts, can decide that this particular thought 
perhaps is not reasonable at all. Same thing with feelings. Equanimity is a level of awareness of expanded consciousness or higher consciousness where we can look at our emotional feelings and understand, interpret, or translate what they say about who we are and still manage those emotional feelings. Learn from both thoughts and feelings from an exalted and elevated place. This is often referred to as detachment. But I think that's a confusing word because then people think, well, if I'm detached, I'm also dissociated and I know less about my thoughts and feelings if I'm detached. Well, actually, the concept is that by becoming detached, you could take a step back and see the bigger picture. That detachment, another way of talking about these states of equanimity, is actually a way of seeing the bigger picture, of getting even more information and a deeper understanding of thoughts and feelings, whatever they may be, on any topic in any matter at all. Uh, mindfulness is another word for this detachment, mindfulness. Today we're going to use the word equanimity, and uh, it's a beautiful word. We should know this word, and uh, most of us don't. So let's learn the word and begin to use the word and moreover, uh, open ourselves to a practice that this word or concept suggests. Let's look at the roots of the word. First of all, uh, the prefix to equanimity is equa or equa or equal, right? So it suggests a balance. Equa suggests a, a middle point or a balance point. Anonymity, anonymity, I didn't say that right, anonymity is a different word. The suffix of the word, anonymity, equanimity, anonymity is a reference to the soul, as in anima and animus. That's the male and female version of the solar self, the S-O-U- the higher spiritual self, the individuated spiritual self, not separated in form the way physical bodies are separated, part as a spiritual thing, part of the one life and the one ocean, but nevertheless as consciousness individuated. Think of the middle ground between separation and unity as being a place of harmony, where you're not completely separated, but you're not so unified that you've lost your sense of individuality. This is the middle ground between unity and diversity, between unity and separation, between what the ancient mystic called the one, with a capital O, the one life, the one thing, the one God or Godhead, and the many, uh, the creatures or the physical forms that populate 
a universe, one verse, many forms, right? A multiplicity of life. So there, there is a suggestion, even in the ancient Hermetic text, uh, the Emerald Tablet, the the, the famous second rubric is as above, so below. And as it is below, so it is above. This is called in metaphysics and mysticism the law of correspondence. Right? As above, so below. That the physical world or the physical dense universe is a reflection of spirit. All right? And this leads to some really beautiful metaphors to help us understand that paradox. One that I was contemplating this week that is absolutely ancient and found in Eastern philosophy. This is typical of the kind of stuff we're looking for in Western religion and never seem to be able to find it in Western religion. But Consider that the, see, how did, how did the Buddhist masters say it? I, I can only paraphrase now. We're coming off the top of my head, but I've been thinking all week about this idea that as big as the moon may be and as small as a given drop of water may be, that that drop of water at night could hold the reflected image of the entire moon. Okay, No matter how big the moon, no matter how small the drop, that the image of the moon can be contained by the drop. You could argue that the entire universe could be contained by the drop in its reflection and then get insight into that ancient mystical reference that the universe exists in every grain of sand. The old mystic would say, the sun is in the grain of sand, as surely as the grain of sand came from the sun. Another way of talking about this, it might even be easier for you to understand as we talk about this as above, so below, in the middle Point, the balance point, which is our topic for today, equanimity, is to consider that while a drop of water may not be part of the ocean, that you can have a drop of water that is separated from the ocean, but you cannot separate the ocean from the drop. While the drop may not be in the ocean, the ocean is always in the drop. You see? pretty clever way of discussing this paradox and a great deal of truth. Some would say all truth is found in paradox. The paradox of the one and the many. Why would one life or one God create so many divergent forms and then seem to endure this struggle as these various forms argue about who's right and who's wrong and who's good and who's bad and and what is the name of God and I kill you in the name of God to prove what a loving devotee of God I really am. I mean, it's insanity and madness because we don't comprehend 
the idea of a balance point, I would argue, or a middle point, and that's our topic today. A new word for many of us, equanimity, an equal point for the soul to rest. Equal, equal, balanced, animus, anima, anima, the soul. Equanimity is a balanced soul. It is a mindful and detached point of view. It is an expanded level of awareness or a heightened level of awareness or consciousness. Uh, Expanded and heightened, we could use either of those. Awareness or consciousness, we could use either of those for to be aware of our consciousness or to be conscious of ourselves as awareness, sort of of two ways of talking about the same thing. And that's the essence of who you are. That's your point of view above your thoughts and feelings. The awareness that you are more than those thoughts, that you are more than those emotional feelings. Just as you are not limited to your physical body, you were so much more than that. You existed before you had a body. You will exist after you have a body. And you can prove that to yourself while you're still in a body. Why in the world would you wait until you die to find out what it's like after life in form if there was some way that you could experience that while you're still alive. Some way to visit heaven, if you will. Some way to discover the part of you that is infinite and eternal and could never die. And that's meditation, contemplation, mindfulness, attaining this level of equanimity, this balance point. Now, if equanimity is a balance, a mindful place of expanded or heightened awareness, what are we balanced between? And in the simplest sense, the yin and yang of the extremes here that we're attempting to find a middle for. In Buddhism, it's sometimes called the near enemy and the far enemy. So what is the near enemy of equanimity or mindfulness? And what is the far enemy of mindfulness, equanimity? Uh, Both are enemies in a sense. What is the danger? What is the hazard of getting off balance and falling one side or the other, one way or the other? Falling back into an unconscious sense of yourself as conscious but unaware of awareness. Most of us think we are our bodies, our thoughts, and our feelings. We identify with the physical body, this is who I am, and my thoughts and feelings, well, I have to do what my thoughts tell me to do, and I have to feel the way my feelings tell me to feel. Now, that's not true. But throughout history, the vast majority of humanity has lived, grown old, and died suffering that confusion, 
that misunderstanding that I mean many many of our friends believe not only they are their bodies, their thoughts and their feelings. I I know people who believe they are what they own. Don't you? People who believe they are their property. They are the car they drive. Uh, they are their trophy wife or their powerful husband. Um, you know, we could point to Bernie Madoff because it's such an extreme example, but uh, how how different is he from most people who believe he is the stuff that he owns or the level of power um, or leverage or status or prestige uh, that he has, right? The country club you belong to, the address of your business, um, you know, the weight of your stationary paper, uh, all of these things, appearance, to believe that appearance is who you are, is, is a very common conundrum and, and, and point of confusion for most people. So if you are aware if you're consciously aware that you are not simply the money and the property that you own, that you are more than your house and your car and your clothing, well, keep going. Consider that you are more than your physical body, and this is where it gets important, even more than your thoughts and more than your feelings. You can change your behavior. You can change your mind. Most people don't know they can change their thoughts. I'm sorry, that's changing your mind. I misspoke. Most people are unaware that they can change their feelings as well. And if you can change not only your behavior... And your body, you could gain weight or lose weight or get healthy or allow yourself to become sick. You can change your body. You can you grow a whole new body every seven or eight years, right? Every cell is replaced every seven or eight years. You can change your body. You can change your mind. If you could only learn to change your emotional nature, it would force you to say, well, then who am I? If I am able to change my circumstances and my behavior and my health and my thoughts, then I must be my feelings. But if I could change my feelings, then what is the point where I create that change? In mythology, wasn't it Hercules who said, if I can, if I can find a place to stand, I can move the world? Well, Equanimity or mindfulness is similar in a sense of consciousness. If I could find a point of consciousness that is equal, then I could be the consciousness and manage my emotional feelings, manage my thoughts, manage my body and my behavior, and maximize my contribution and my service to the world around me and enjoy all the benefits you know, personal and otherwise, that come from that. Let me talk about the near enemy and far enemy very quickly, and then I'll go to some bullet points I have. And again, reminding you, I will take your questions and your comments 
you're on the telephone, press star 2 to raise your hand. And if you're listening to the web feed, you can just type your question, your comment at any time into the fields on the screen in front of you. Enter your name and city and hit submit. Remember to hit submit. And we'll go to the questions and comments in just a few minutes. The near enemy, so-called, in Buddhism anyway, in Buddhist philosophy, the near enemy of equanimity or mindfulness is repression. This can be called suppression or oppression. Um, there's slightly different meanings to the words. Um, usually a repression is an unconscious suppression. And oppression tends to be caused by other people. Somebody else could oppress you. I'm not sure you can oppress yourself. But you could consciously choose to suppress a memory or a thought or an identity or a behavior. Repression is doing it unconsciously. So the near enemy of equanimity or mindfulness is to either consciously suppress or more likely unconsciously repress those thoughts and feelings that you don't want to deal with, that you don't understand, that frighten you or just make you feel anxious, stressed out, or a little bit nervous, and I don't want to know about it, make it go away. And so, oddly, we use stress and muscular tension to create an insensitivity, a deliberate amnesia, a, a denial or avoidance behavior. You've heard the joke that um, denial is more than a river in Africa. It's something that we all tend to do from time to time. That would be the near enemy of mindfulness or equanimity. The far enemy is even more common. And that's holding on or embracing negativity in our lives as if that's the best way to manage it. This is so widespread that it's rarely discussed, except in the most general terms, that we hold on to our fear and anything that we don't really understand or that confuses us, because that's what fear is. You do not have that much danger in your life. 99% of your fear, and then some, has nothing to do with danger. It's what you don't know, what you don't understand about your life that causes the feeling of danger called fear, anxiety, stress, nervousness, apprehension. I mean, even a little bit of fear is still fear, right? A lot of, lots of times we'll deny that. We'll say, well, I, you know, I have my concerns or I'm a little nervous, but I'm really not afraid. Well, you're just mincing terms. Call it whatever you want. It's fear. It's stress. And to hold on to that <laughs> creates a sense that the fear is holding on to you that the fear is chasing you, that these horrible, negative, frightful feelings are really tenacious and they've got a grip on you and you can't shake them. 
And, of course, the only way to let them go, fear in general, fear of any kind, anxiety, worry, whatever term you want to use, is to acknowledge that the fear is not holding on to you. You're holding on to it. You drag your fear and your pain and your hurt with you. How do I know this? I did it most of my life. As a journalist, I... I began to, I think most of you know my story, move away from current events and and over the years became increasingly interested in this story, human potential and our denial of potential that, that, that most of us work very hard to try to find an advantage in being a helpless victim of anything that frightens us. And it scares people, at least initially, to consider that they're holding on to the fear and they could let it go. You could allow yourself to feel fearless, but that's too scary. So now we have another conundrum, another bizarre paradox, where we say to ourselves, en masse, this is a generalized human condition, that the best way for me to be safe is to perpetually hold on to my fear. Because fear will be a safeguard, and my fear will protect me, and my fear will make me feel safe. But of course it doesn't, it makes you feel afraid. The only way to feel safe would be to allow yourself to feel safe. But then most people say, well, I'm wait, that, that would be terrifying. What if I'm feeling safe and some danger sneaks up on me? I don't think that's very safe. I think the best way to feel safe is to be afraid. Do you understand the insanity of this? And do you have the courage? I I think you do because you're here at this class. You're listening either live or to the replay or the podcast. So obviously you're facing it, but... You know what I'm talking about. We've all come from, from, from a place of denial, and most of our friends and neighbors are still in avoidance and denial, pretending to be helpless, hopeless victims of fear. Uh, an effect of life, seeing life as a one-way street and the arrow is pointed at you and your life is being done to you. And the idea that you could choose responses and initiate your life and that the initiation every day of your life trumps the part of it that's done to you doesn't occur to most people because they have little or no skill at attaining this level of equanimity, this balance point, right? between the near enemy of denial and the far enemy of embracing the fear. And equanimity is just letting it go altogether. Let me share some of these bullet points with you that I've pulled from a number of sources. Uh, Equanimity is one of the most sublime emotions in Buddhist practice. It's the ground for wisdom and freedom and The protector, it is said by Buddhist teachers, the protector of compassion and love. 
equanimity, mindfulness, guarantees that love at the highest frequency, compassion and forgiveness, empathy and understanding will always be available to you. Some may think of equanimity as some sort of dry neutrality or a cool aloofness, but in fact, equanimity, if mature and as it matures, produces nothing short of a radiance and a, and, and a warmth of being. Buddha describes a mind filled with equanimity as, in the words of Buddha, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, and without ill will. Okay. Again, equanimity essentially a synonym for mindful or detached. To be the witness of your life. To see things as they truly are without having to perpetually pigeonhole everything. Aren't you tired of the constant judging that you do? Are you even aware of your need? Should I say our need? Because I still do it too. I've got to catch myself. And to some extent, to live in the world, we have to be judgmental. But we can also, on demand, learn to rise above that and stop judging for a time and understand how much closer to reality we are when we cease the perpetual judging of everything as right or wrong, good or bad, or I like this or I don't like that. Right? <laughs> I remember Guy Finley talking about this in my program once. Guy uh, is a prolific uh, uh, author and uh, uh, personal development teacher and a trainer and I remember him talking about broccoli on the radio one day and he said it's not that you dislike broccoli you just think you dislike broccoli and he he went on seemed to be rather a personal insight uh, on how you know we make these decisions we make these judgments and then become imprisoned by the judgment that, you know, I hate broccoli. Remember George Bush said, I hate broccoli. Well, when was the last time you ate something that you hated? You were probably five years old, right? You say, oh, no, 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 I've tasted broccoli since then, and I hate it. I just don't like it. Well, is it that you really hate the taste? Or is this a decision that you've made? Are you a prisoner of the uh, of of that idea of that judgment, and I would argue the latter, that we are prisoners of these judgments that we make about things as good and bad. And sometimes in life we'll rediscover, you know, I just bought this head of organic broccoli, or I grew some in my yard and I steamed it gently, and my God, I had no idea that it could taste so delicious. You see. Uh, or especially prepared this way or whatever. I had no idea. What was I thinking? Food's a good example because we have several generations now of Americans who have never eaten 
real food. They've never had a real tomato, for example, and they'll say, oh, I hate tomatoes. I don't like tomatoes. They don't have any flavor, and they're always hard, and I don't like tomatoes. Well, they probably never had a real tomato. What are you eating? These these things that they call tomatoes that are grown in these enormous farms and bred to withstand being hauled to market in a giant truck. Have you ever seen these huge trucks bringing produce to market? Those of you in California, I bet you have. These super semi-trucks, and you think about the tomato that's down in the bottom of one of those huge bins of tomatoes. Why is it not getting crushed? Well, number one, it's not ripe, and number two, it's not a real tomato. Some hybrid they made in a laboratory that's supposed to look good, but not taste good, nor be nutritious, but it looks good, and it withstands the rigor of travel and marketing, and it's got a long shelf life, and no wonder it tastes horrible. But we made a judgment. time for you to perhaps re-examine this tendency that we have to judge everything as right or wrong, good or bad, something you like, something you don't like, winners and losers, everything or nothing. What if you just stopped that? What if you just stopped that for five minutes and looked out at the world with eyes that were intended to see things as they truly are, instead of as you believe them to be. That's part of what's available to you as you aspire to this mindfulness or this equanimity. A couple of other things I mentioned in the newsletter um, this week uh, that we can do from this point of view of, 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 of being more mindful, not only give up the judging, but also give up the need to control what's happening to us. The need for control is huge in our lives. And thirdly, the need for approval and acceptance. Those of you who take notes, those three points, Stop the judging. Stop the need for control. Give up the need for approval. And what's left? Somebody who's happy and free and sees things as they truly are. Right? What do you do in its place? I don't want to sound like Dr. Phil where it's stop doing this. (laughs) What's the solution? Stop doing it. That's not a solution. We need a new behavior. When you stop judging, what you can do is see things as they truly are. When you stop controlling or trying to control what's done to you, what you can do instead is control, or better word, I think, manage your perceptions, attitudes, and responses. Give up trying to control what's done to you and instead control your perception and response. That's the wisdom to know the difference. For those of you that know the serenity prayer, Lord, grant me the serenity 
to accept what I cannot change and the courage to change what I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Well, there you go. There's the wisdom to know the difference. You cannot control what's done to you in most cases. Sometimes you could influence or persuade or cajole or, or you know, bribe or <laughs> whatever. But uh, the vast majority of what's done to you is as uncontrollable as the weather. But you can control your perception and response. Right? Forgive me if some of what I say sounds repetitious. Uh, the stuff I'm repeating needs repetition. So the substitute for trying to control life is to control your perception and response rather than the stimulus. Right? So the, um, the third area then, how do I give up the need for approval? It's to accept that you cannot fail at being who you truly are and give up your need for you to be other than who you truly are and dedicate yourself passionately to an exploration or an investigation of who you truly are. Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that be a whole hell of a lot more exciting than trying to find which costume fits and which mask to wear and what role to play or what character to be and which way do I talk and how do I act depending on who I'm with? I mean, some of that, I suppose, is unavoidable. As long as we have the refuge of a mindful level, a point of equanimity, of balance, that we can escape to, to reorient ourselves, right? And say, well, yeah, I was playing a role or a character and I wore a mask at that event today, the little game I play with myself. But at least I did it consciously, all right? Let's go a little farther into this. Approaches to developing equanimity include cultivating the qualities of mind that support it. Uh, I have a bullet point here from some research I did on the Internet with seven qualities. I'm going to race through real quickly. Seven mental qualities that support the development of equanimity. And when I get through these, then we'll go to your questions and your comments. And we'll also do, as we always do each week, a little guided imagery exercise uh, toward the end of the uh, class here today. So seven mental qualities to support the development of mindfulness, the development of equanimity, of steady mind, calm heart. We think of the mind as being steady like a single candle flame that burns boldly and brightly but does not flutter. Steady mind, no distraction, steady mind, and calm heart. Okay. So a steady mind, it's not that a steady mind has no thoughts. 
you can aspire to a level of contemplation where you clear the mind of all thoughts and yet you remain. That's a wonderful high goal, but as beginners, it's way too much to ask. Start with just watching the thoughts from a point of steady mind. Watch that train of thoughts. One car after another, one thought linking to the next thought, linking to the next thought. Even when your thoughts are not applied and you sit back in the chair and take a deep breath and put your feet up and relax for a minute, the brain shifts into stream of consciousness. Your thoughts are not applied, but your brain is still thinking. Mostly what it's doing is trying to find reasons why you're so stressed out. It's mostly full of paranoid fantasies and fear. So you can look at thoughts from that steady flame, that steady mind, and the same thing with the calm heart. doesn't mean you won't have emotional feelings, but you can feel them in a detached and mindful way. Okay. So let's look at some of these seven qualities. Well, let's look at all seven. Number one, um, the first is the virtue of integrity. When we live and act with integrity, we feel confident about our actions and our words, and, and that results in blamelessness, which is another form of equanimity, to, re- to stop blaming altogether, the, uh, to accept responsibility. The, the ancient Buddhist texts speak of being able to go into any assembly of people and feel blameless. The uh, second mental quality for uh, supporting equanimity is a sense of assurance that comes from what we'll have to call faith, right? Um, A belief that goes beyond reason. And while any kind of faith could provide equanimity, faith that's grounded in wisdom is especially powerful. Um, the Sanskrit, or actually the Pali word uh, for faith in the old um, Hindu and Buddhist transcripts is also translated as conviction or confidence. And if we have confidence in our ability to engage in a spiritual practice, we're more likely to meet its challenges with equanimity. Okay? There's a lot of power in faith. The third is a well-developed mind, much as we might develop physical strength or balance and stability of the body in a gymnasium. Well, in the same way, you can develop strength and balance and stability between your ears, (laughs) in your mind. And that includes the emotional nature as well as the mental nature. And this is done through practices that cultivate uh, a calm undisturbed, tranquil form of concentration and mindfulness. When the mind is calm, we're less likely to be blown about by the winds of the world. The fourth support is a sense of general well-being, and we don't need to leave well-being to chance. And Again, in Buddhist philosophy, it's considered appropriate and helpful to cultivate and enhance well-being. We may often overlook well-being that's easily available in daily life. 
um, even taking time to em- enjoy a cup of tea or uh, the sunset is a training in well-being. I heard Ram Das speak the other day. I watched a YouTube video of Ram Das talking about contentment and how often are you truly content. And, of course, there's a hazard when you talk to people about being content, happy, or satisfied because there's so much injustice and cruelty and insanity in the world that many activists, even if spiritually motivated, would say, we have no time to be content. We have to fight the injustice. We have to go out into the world through service and make things better. And maybe then we'll be content. Well, I would argue just the other way, that by allowing yourself at least periods of contentment and well-being, you can be better at changing the world, working for justice and peace, and less likely to burn out because you're coming from such a powerful place of, again, well-being and contentment. Uh, This fifth support, understanding or wisdom. Wisdom is an important factor in learning to have an accepting awareness, to be present for whatever is happening without the mind or heart contradicting or resisting. Wisdom teaches us to separate people's action from who they are. This can be really difficult, right? Uh, George Bush represents a lot of things. But at the end of the day, poor old George Bush, he's, he's in as much or more pain as anybody else in this world. He's got to pull his pants on one leg at a time. He's got to look at the havoc that, I mean, you might say, well, that I don't think the guy has a conscience or, or, you know, a soul. Well, maybe I shouldn't choose such an extreme example. But I think it's true for everybody to to have compassion. At the same time, you don't tolerate what they represent, but are able to separate someone's behavior from who they are. To bring it home a little closer than George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and torture and war based on lies and ignoring the people in New Orleans after Katrina and on and on and on, What if you just learn to do this with your kids? That is, separate what they've done from who they are. Wouldn't that have a major impact on parenting? And if you were parented that way, then that would change the way you parent your children and the way you manage people in the workplace. To distinguish between what they've done and who they are. So to the child, you say, Oh, no, this behavior of yours um, is bad, and I'm very upset. In fact, uh, Daddy's very, very angry uh, about your behavior here and and what you did writing all over the wall with these oil paints. (laughs) And because I love you so much, uh, there are going to have to be some consequences, and we'll talk about what's appropriate after I calm down. Now, give me a hug and and, and uh, get yourself upstairs, 
and we'll talk later when I'm more calm um, about uh, about the difference between who you are as my lovable sweet child and this behavior. What a distinction, you see. I'm pretty sure your house was like mine, where if you made a mistake as a kid, it's not that your behavior was bad, you are bad. And then we would go to our bedrooms feeling like we're in real danger because we really screwed up. And these people that feed us and clothe us and shelter us could kick us to the curb at any time because we're bad. Well, the word I heard in my household was rotten. Well, I grew up in an area of rural Michigan where a lot of fruit grows, and you know what they do with rotten fruit? They throw it away. And as a little boy, I thought I was going to be thrown away because I was told I was a rotten kid. Not that you're this beautiful bundle of joy and we love you so very much, but are severely upset about your behavior. But you've got to be able to do that with yourself as well. Another way wisdom supports equanimity is in understanding that people are responsible for their own decisions as adults, which helps us find equanimity in the face of other people's suffering. We can wish the best for them and still avoid being buffeted by a false sense of responsibility for their well-being. Okay, Part of being responsible for your life is allowing other people to be responsible for theirs. Yeah, isn't that a little tricky? (laughs) Part of the temptation of wanting to be responsible for other people's lives is to allow yourself to be irresponsible for yours, right? So your life will blame on other people and create that belief system and reinforce it by sympathizing with other people for their helplessness and victimization. One of the most powerful ways to use wisdom to, to, to facilitate equanimity is to be mindful of when it's not there. Uh, honest awareness of this makes us imbalanced, helps us to learn how to find the balance. The sixth support for developing mindfulness or equanimity is insight. Uh, A a deep seeing into the nature of things as they truly are. I mentioned this a few minutes ago before I started the list. One of the primary insights is the nature of impermanence. In the deepest forms of this insight, we see that everything is in flux. Everything in physical dense is constantly changing. It is fluidic. It is mercurial. And you can't hold on to anything that isn't moving, shifting, and changing. And eventually, the mind will let go of clinging to the appearance of permanence. And that letting go, of course, will bring the mindfulness, the equanimity. And the greater the letting go, the, the deeper the equanimity. And this goes back um, not just to the Eastern philosophers, but the ancient Greeks in the West were very clear that there could be no truth in the physical world because everything in the physical world was constantly changing. Was If it was made by man, it was in decay. 
And if it was part of nature, it was cyclic and had its seasons. But in either case, whether made by man and in decay or of nature, cycling around and around and around, you still have impermanence. Nothing lasts. Heraclitus, or some say Heraclitus, is famous for a number of quotable quotations, but maybe his best known is, no man ever steps in the same river twice. Beautiful. No man ever steps in the same river twice. Everything about your life is in flux. I mentioned earlier today, every seven years you get a whole new body. Every cell in your body, except there are some nerve cells that are not replaced, but essentially every cell in your body is replaced. What is replacing all of those cells? Right? Most of the dust in the house that you vacuum up is your body sloughing off hair and skin. I know people don't like to hear that, but that's what dust is. It's not dirt from outside. There is some of that, but it's mostly you decaying, (laughs) being reborn again every instant. Millions of cells every day sloughing off and being replaced and others repaired. And so it is for all living things and even the so-called inorganic material kingdom is constantly changing. Mountains are being eroded and washed away to the sea, buried in their own debris, while at the same time, other mountains are growing higher and higher. The the east side of the United States, if you know the Appalachian Mountains and the Blue Ridge Mountains, they're buried in their own debris. You don't see very many rocky outcroppings. They're pretty much covered with dirt and trees. And they're getting smaller and smaller every year. Or out west in the Rocky Mountains, they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger every year because of the uplifting mountain building activity and the pressures of the earth. Even the continents, it's now understood, have floated and moved around on the planet. When I was in college, that was a theory. They taught it to us with the caveat that we're not sure this is really true. But look at the way the east coast of South America just happens to fit so nicely into the west coast of Africa. Is that a coincidence? No, they drifted apart hundreds of millions of years ago. Everything is in change. Every drop of water is evaporated, precipitates, and rains back down to earth. The same water that was here hundreds of millions of years ago is here now, you see. The same air molecules, the same carbon, the same nitrogen and oxygen and hydrogen that's been here since the beginning of the universe is the building blocks of life today. But it's all being recycled and changed. It's growing, it's decaying, it's breaking down, and well, there's really nothing to hold on to, is there? A little scary at first, until you realize that the essence of who you are, and you will realize this in a point of mindfulness and equanimity, this is the detachment we seek 
in meditation. That as consciousness, you may change, but you will not die. You are eternal and permanent. You may grow and evolve. You may develop your awareness, right? But you're really not going anywhere. And so the world around you changes. It's like the pendulum. The bottom of the pendulum swings to and fro, yin and yang. But the top of the pendulum is fixed, unmoving, unmovable, eternal, and infinite, standing essentially outside of space and time. And the final is freedom. Freedom which comes as we begin to let go of our reactive tendencies. We can get a taste of what freedom means by noticing areas in which we were once reactive, but learned to respond instead. Where you got conscious and you made choices instead of just reflexive knee-jerks. For example, some issues that upset us when we were teenagers now don't bother you at all. Um, and in Buddhist practice, we work to expand the range of life experiences um, in which we are free. And uh, I think with that, I'll look over my notes and see if there's anything else. I think that pretty much covers it. Um, so let's, let's go to your questions and your comments here and see what you folks have to say about all of this. And again, if you're listening on the phone or want to go to the telephone, uh, keep in mind, first of all, there's a 15-second delay on the web feed. So the phone is absolutely live. The web feed, like radio, talk radio, is delayed by 15 seconds. So if you do both, you might be a little surprised at first. So you'll find a telephone number if you choose to use the telephone. On the web page right above the player, there's a primary number, a backup number. They're in the primary numbers in San Francisco area. But if you click on the link that says other numbers, there's uh, phone numbers all over the U.S. if you're concerned about a toll call. Uh, most of us have flat rate, but concerned about a toll call, find an area code near you, use that number. And when prompted by the system, just enter the conference ID. Um, if you want to raise your hand and be acknowledged, press star 2. Those of you who prefer to comment by web, just use the fields on the page in front of you. And um, we have Robert in Irvine, who's done just that, and He's written Aloha, Michael. Thanks for another wonderful discussion. The metaphor I often like to use to illustrate the one and the many is the idea of a hologram. It can be broken into many pieces, and yet each piece can be, re or each piece can reconstruct the whole. And uh, that's why each of us are individuals, and yet part of the whole. And uh, that's a very nice high-tech version of the moon reflected in the drop of water. It's true. If you had a, a Robert's absolutely right. You, you break a hologram, 
and every broken piece contains the image of the whole from the point of view of that piece. It's pretty far out. A nice model for uh, um, a larger cosmology. Robert goes on, he says, I understand that I'm not my thoughts and feelings because they are the result of the choices I make. Well, then, Robert, you must be making choices that would separate you apart from uh, most of us most of the time. But can I say I am my choices? No, you'd be more than that. After all, I can choose to be happy. Intuitively, I feel I am even more than my choices. I am free. Yeah, you are more than your choices. But the choices have to be made from an I am uh, a place. And that's in perpetual development. You are what? It keeps growing. keeps expanding. And the wisdom says it never ends. Socrates said, if you consider your identity as being this enormous ocean and you stand before this huge ocean the more you know about the ocean the bigger and deeper it becomes I like that Carol's with us of course from La Habra and she says hello and aloha hi Carol in Tucson Lorelei again this week hello Lorelei he says, I'm interested in, uh, no, wait a minute. I'm listening at work today so that I can call in. But next Sunday I have often definitely, oh, I see what she's saying. Hold on a sec here. She's saying she's working so she can't call in today, but next Sunday she'll call. And thanks for the great class. Good. Thank you, Lorelei. That'll be fun. Um, Robert says, my belief is, uh, when we do not truly like ourselves, we project judgment on others. You know, um, before I read the rest of that, Robert, I think that's true, but I think we project judgment on others when we don't know ourselves, which is sort of the place we begin. You know, you're born into life not knowing anything about yourself, so um, it's not that we know ourselves and don't like ourselves and then judge others. Let me read the rest of what you have to say. Maybe it's the, maybe it is in a state of equanimity that we better realize that we are not only part of the whole, which is in itself perfect. We therefore, as a part, must be perfect, that is, in its image too. And this allows us to forgive ourselves and also not judge others. Okay, uh, yeah, I think the relative um, concept of perfect, to see perfect as a relative idea, um, then I'd be okay with that. Uh, to, think of rel to think of perfect as an absolute, where we'd have to capitalize it, um, that would beg an argument with your position. If, if only to, um, I think that's probably my best response, is to say that I'm not sure what we mean by perfect. You put quotes in it and said, in its image. In that sense, you're talking about absolute perfect, and it really should be capitalized, 
and then only the divine is absolutely perfect. That we are in its image means we are perfect, small p in a relative sense. We are perfectly in the image of that perfection, but in and of ourselves do not have the perfection of the creator or the source. I think that's the way the wisdom would state it. You're free, of course, to handle it any way you want. And uh, the joy is in asking the question, not deciding the answer anyway, right? One of those unanswerable imponderables that uh, that we love so much. Okay, we have people on the telephone, a whole bunch of people on the telephone, but nobody has raised their hand, nobody has pressed star two. Uh, everybody's lurking today, so that's fine, too. Um, I had a ringer set up, but he's not with us today. And uh, Lorelai said she'll call next week, so I'm going to find some more ringers here. I think once we break the ice, it'll probably be easier for you to do it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, let's do our little uh, visualization process our guided imagery exercise, our meditation for the day. And then I'll let you go and get comfortable. This is a good time for you, if you're listening live or by replay. Get as comfortable as you can. I'd like you to sit straight up. You can lay down if you want, but you're likely to go to sleep if you do. It's better if you sit up. But you don't need to be rigid. In fact, you do not want to be rigid. You want to be relaxed and therefore balanced. If we're going to have a balanced mind, we need to begin with a balanced body. So sit straight as if balanced, as if your head is directly above your spine and your shoulders are back. You feel perfectly balanced. And you can even imagine your spine coming into perfect alignment and all the vertebrae and all the discs and the ligaments and the tendons and connective tissue and the muscle that supports the spine all comes into perfect alignment creating a path of least resistance for the energies within your body to move to and fro, back and forth. A path of least resistance for the energies that are generated within your body, but turn your attention vertically and consider by letting go and feeling safe and relaxed, becoming the path of least resistance for a spiritual energy that like a gentle rain precipitates down. And you can think of your head as having a funnel on the very top of your head, like a gentle vortex, little little whirlwind of energy in the very top of your head. That, like a funnel, allows that spiritual energy to be gathered up and focused right at the crown chakra. 
as it fills the brain and moves down the spine, even into your legs, through your knees, all the way down to your toes and the soles of your feet. Imagine yourself sitting receptive and open to the impressions of spirit as light, as peace, as compassion and harmony. Feel yourself sitting balanced, effortlessly floating, as if somewhat above your thoughts and feelings. Not superior in an egoic sense, but elevated as if the higher you climb the mountain, the broader are the horizons that you can see. The more elevated your perspective, the more inclusive and comprehensive is the view of all things. And this is less an effort than it is a matter of allowing yourself to let go of thoughts and feelings, to let go of the ties that bind you, your belief systems. to your sense of self as a single separated body banging around in a world of separated forms. And as you imagine yourself effortlessly becoming more tranquil in both mental and emotional senses, emotionally calm, mentally quiet, steady, peaceful. You see yourself in relationships with family and friends, with a community, a state, a nation, with a world and indeed a universe and cosmos that you can begin to perceive as one thing, truly a universe, a unified cosmos. Approximately 150 billion galaxies, each with 125 billion stars, with countless planets, 
all part of one thing, one universe, one life. And so you aspire to sit quietly and effortlessly in the middle. The equinox, the equator, the equanimity between the one and the many, between the unified and the separate, between the whole and the diverse. Mindfully aware that you are all of this and more. That you have possessions, but you are more than your possessions. That you have a body And yet you're more than the body, for you get a new body every seven years or so. That you have thoughts. And yet you are more than your thoughts. And you have emotional feelings. But your thoughts and your feelings are in constant flux and therefore must be more than those ever-changing thoughts and feelings. We need a ground upon which to sit. Philosophers have called this the ground of God. In the East, it is called the Buddhic plane. In the West, religious people call this ground heaven. It is a middle position between the oneness and the multiplicity. That is all-inclusive and comprehensive. That stands at once balanced in both worlds, the world of spirit and the world of matter the universe that is eternal and infinite as well as the physical universe of constant flux, change, and impermanence. You are both in awe. And imagine yourself effortlessly, peacefully, fearlessly sitting upon that ground in that elevated position of harmony in form but above and free of form in the image of the one and yet unique from all others and both things are true and more the third the fourth the fifth the sixth 
the seventh permutation, the eighth variation. Unlimited alternatives. But in the simplest sense, a duality. A paradox, but still a duality. As above, so below. And as it is below, so it is above. A diverse and apparently separated material world is a reflection of the one. In the way the tiniest drop of water could never really be separated from the ocean except by appearance. For though the drop may not be in the ocean, the ocean is always in the drop. And the most high, the most divine, purpose, meaning, power of the most high is within you. And you are within it. Extended into form. To experience the challenges of realizing who you really are and what you're really for in this life, to be in the world but not of it. Not of it as a victim, but definitely in it as a contributor. In a moment, I'm going to take a Blow deep breaths myself and suggest that you do exactly the same. After which, you can open your eyes wide awake and alert and back in the room. So do that now. Inhale. Take a nice, big, full, deep breath. And as you exhale, open your eyes now. Wide awake. Refreshed. Alert. Rested and back in the room. And now you have both perspectives. You can go out into the world and be that separated person in a world of separated forms and have a wonderful day knowing that when it gets scary and stressful and hurtful and confusing, you can close your eyes and breathe and relax and find the ground of the one life Sit there in equanimity, a new word for many of us, the balanced soul above and free of form. Hey, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for sending these to your friends. And again, those of you who are supporting us with the premium audio program, thank you so very much. This is a lot like public radio where the majority of people who listen do not make any contribution. And if you're so inclined, that's not a problem. I'll never guilt trip anybody. But we have a premium audio program that my partner of 30-plus years, Steve Snyder, and I do. It's studio quality. It's both of us together in conversation plus meditations and guided imagery exercises. And uh, I think you're going to absolutely love it. 
for 99 cents a week. We'll bill you 3.96 a month. You can unsubscribe at any time and resubscribe at any time and manage your own account and change your contact information at focusedpassion.com. So if you like this program and you'd like to begin a collection of studio-quality audio programs with Steve and I together, you know, 35 years of research on Steve's part and 35 years of research on my part, that's a lot of research that we've already done for you. And as happy as I am to continue to do this class for free, and it'll always be for free, it'd be really great if you could join the group of people that go that extra mile and spend less than $1 a week on the premium audio program. Would you check it out and consider it? If you're not happy, I'll refund your month, okay, three ninety six. Use a credit card or a debit card. Your ATM card will work. You don't even need to have credit. And um, just go to Focused Passion. That's got an E-D in it, so it's the W's dot focusedpassion.com. You'll find six programs, complete programs there that you can get for free. Just leave a, a name and your email address, and you'll get access to the site. doesn't cost anything to get a free account set up. You choose a password. If it's already been taken, we'll send you another one. And that's all we need is your name, your email address, and then you choose a password. Then you'll have a free account at Focused Passion. Uh, in addition to about eight or nine excerpts on the front page, once you log in, there will be six complete programs in the player. And then if you choose to subscribe at some point, fill out the rest of the form, and for 99 cents a week, you can add to your collection 52 premium audio programs every year. Studio quality with Steve and I. Hot stuff. If you like this, you'll love what Steve and I do together. And that way we can continue to do this for free. The articles are free. Uh, you'll get discounts on Maui seminars and a lot of cool stuff that's coming up too. But um, if, you can, if you can break away, I know we're all on tight budgets now, but if you can find $1 a week, um, this will pay you back. I, I guarantee you're going to get a lot more value uh, than 99 cents from these premium audio programs. So get on board with that at focusedpassion.com and join us here every Sunday afternoon for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. If you're not getting the newsletter, sign up for that. It also is free at theagelesswisdom.com or if you just register at Focused Passion, you get the newsletter too. Email me at mb at theagelesswisdom.com, my initials, mb at theagelesswisdom.com. I read all my mail personally. I'll write back to you if uh, that's what you'd like. I'd love to hear from you, and uh, thanks so much for being here. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. Aloha from Maui. <laughs>